we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Did you know that your internet service providers like Comcast or Verizon know every single website you visit? Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash gold, and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year package to ExpressVPN. Well, today's jobs report, the last jobs report before the presidential election, was overshadowed by the early morning announcement that both President Trump and First Lady Melania have tested positive for COVID-19. The initial reaction was a swift sell-off in the stock market. There was a bit of a rise in the price of gold because gold was down about 10 bucks before the news came out. Uh, It rallied positive, but never really had a, a big gain. Uh, The stock market, though, recovered the losses that it had early on. It spent most of the day rallying back. The Dow, though, did finish down about 134 points, but still kind of close to the highs of the day. S&P percentage-wise down a little bit more, almost 1%. The Nasdaq, that was the big loser, down two and a quarter percent on the day. So recovering, but then selling off into the close. The U.S. dollar didn't make much of a move, slightly higher on the day, as were 
Treasury bond prices, that means yields dipped a little bit, but really not too much action in the market. I think a lot of people don't really know what to make of the news that the president is positive for COVID-19. Personally, I would say that it is a slight negative for uh, the president's re-election chances. Obviously, it's a bigger negative if something really bad happens to him. As of now, I think he has some symptoms. I read he's got a low fever. He has, uh, you know, he's sneezing or nasal congestion. He's got a cough. Uh, But other than that, at this point, it's not substantial. But remember, the president is older. I mean, he's still younger than 80, but he is up there in the high risk category. He's certainly overweight. I'm not really sure what other factors uh, related to health might be at issue here. But clearly, uh, the president is one of the people that should try to avoid COVID-19 based on what we know. And the reason that this may be a negative for the president is he's got it. Right. The I it puts the focus of the election with what just over 30 days to go really back on covid, which is not where the president necessarily wants it to be. And the the accusation by the Democrats right or long is that he didn't do a good job protecting the country from covid. And obviously he didn't do a good job if he couldn't even protect himself from covid. Uh, You know, they've accused the president of not wearing a mask Often enough, he's made fun of uh, of Biden uh, for how often he wears a mask, even in circumstances where you wouldn't think a mask was required. He wears it anyway. Well, uh, Trump is the one that got COVID. So far, Biden doesn't have it. So I think overall, that perception is a negative. I mean, there are some people saying maybe this would work in the president's favor because he may get a sympathy vote. People may feel bad. Uh, that he has COVID, and that may work. In fact, there may be some sympathy votes that could be cast for the president, but I would think it would be more than overshadowed by the fact that uh, this would just shine a bigger light on the COVID problem, and then more people would blame Trump for that problem, especially since he has it. Now, maybe you could say, what if he just gets over it very quickly? No big deal. Wouldn't that prove that there's nothing to worry about? He makes a full recovery before the election and everything is fine. Um, that may be possible. And again, you know, I it's always looking for a balance. And I think on balance, it would skew a bit negative for Trump. One of the big problems, though, might be what if it, uh, disrupts the next two debates. Right? Not, maybe the next debate will happen via Zoom or something if the president has to be in quarantine, because I think it's a 14-day quarantine, and I think the next debate is in 13 days. Certainly, it's possible to have these debates uh, using Zoom. I mean, both people can be in separate rooms, although I think they'd have to assign a member of the opposite team to be able to look into the room. Maybe they're behind glass. Otherwise, you know, they could cheat, right? They can have all kinds of notes out. They can be coached. So I think there'd have to be some proctoring if these guys were, you know, isolated uh, doing uh, doing the debate on Zoom. But also the president's health could deteriorate uh, in the short run. And maybe we don't have the second debate. Maybe we don't have any more debates. I don't know. And that, again, would work against President Trump because Trump needs a victory in these debates. And he didn't get one during the first debate. I mean, even if you want to score the debate uh, for Trump and say he, he wins the decision, he needed a knockout. That's the problem. 
He didn't need a decision. He needed to knock Biden out early. I mean, a huge, big knockout punch because that's what a lot of people were expecting. That's what they thought Trump needed because, you know, he's he's got to come from behind. He's the underdog. And there were people that thought, well, wait till the debates, right? That's Trump's chance to really show Biden up, right? Biden won't be able to go against Trump. He doesn't have uh, the, the the mental faculties. He's senile. He, he'll, he'll, he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, he'll be exposed. And so the debates, that was the opportunity uh, for Biden really to self-destruct. And he didn't do it, right? There was no knockout. So from that respect, because Biden went the distance, that's a victory. You know, it's like uh, Rocky won, right? When um, Sylvester Stallone's character, Rocky Balboa, you know, he goes he goes the distance with Apollo Creed. He loses the fight. But the fact that he didn't get knocked out in the first round, that he made it all the way and, and, and didn't get knocked out, right? He won, right? The public looked at Rocky as the winner, because he went the distance. And that's what, remember, he was saying, I went the distance, I went the distance. And so Biden went the distance. Trump didn't knock him out. And so I think that's a problem. So now Trump has an opportunity maybe to knock him out in the second debate or the third debate. But to the extent that these debates don't happen, or maybe they happen in a way uh, that'll make a knockout less likely because maybe they're done over Zoom or something, then the president doesn't have that chance. And I think based on where the polls are right now, unless there's a big game changer, then I think Trump loses. In fact, I think the best hope that people have right now is that the Republicans retain the Senate. And I think there's a better chance of that happening than Trump being reelected. Because I also think that what may happen is that there's probably a lot of people who are going to vote for the lesser of two evils. And to the extent that they vote for Biden as president, even though they don't necessarily like Biden, they just dislike Trump more, so they're voting for Biden, they don't want to really give Biden a mandate. And they want to make sure that there's some check on Biden. They don't want the Democrats to have the Congress, both the House and the Senate, and the White House. So I think a lot of the people that are voting against Trump by voting Biden, are going to try to put a break on Biden by voting Republican in the U.S. Senate. I mean, certainly there'll be a lot of independents that split their ticket that way. I think more so than who vote Trump president and a Democratic Congress, I don't think you're going to get much of that. I think most people that vote for Trump for president will vote Republican, you know, down the ticket. But I think there will be a number of people who vote Biden for a president, but who vote for a Republican in the Senate to check on Biden, right? To stop him from really going full forward uh, with, uh, with everything he'd want to do. So I think that's really the best uh, most people can hope for as far as the outcome of the election. The most extreme impact, though, might put the vice presidential debates in a whole new perspective. And maybe we'll see a lot more interest in that debate because if Trump gets too sick, and basically resigns and hands the presidency to Pence before the election, or, you know, if he actually died and Pence became president, then Pence is now at the top of the ticket instead of the bottom of the ticket, which I think sends a whole new dynamic into this race. 
because a lot of the people who would like to vote for none of the above because they don't like Trump or Biden, none of the above candidate could be Pence. Uh, Pence might have a better chance of winning than Biden, in which case he could be another president like Gerald Ford, right? Gerald Ford was president. He was never actually elected president. He became vice president. And then when he was appointed vice president, when Agnew resigned, and then when Nixon resigned, he became president. He, when he went to run for re-election, he lost against Jimmy Carter. Uh, but this might be a situation where Pence becomes president before the election and now is at the top of the ticket. Of course, another situation could be that Trump lives long enough for the election, but doesn't live long enough uh, to serve the second term, in which case, if Trump won, then Pence would immediately become president. But clearly, the probability or possibility of a Pence presidency is much higher now that the president has COVID and is at risk of potentially dying from COVID either before the election or sometime after, in which case, if he wins, then Pence would be president. But I think what might happen if it really looks like Trump is going to lose, even if he doesn't die, he potentially could resign from the presidency and hand the ball over to Pence uh, to spare himself uh, the embarrassment of losing and maybe uh, giving the uh, the Republicans a better chance of holding the White House and maybe even the Senate as well. But I would have thought that there would have been a bigger decline in the market, maybe not even the stock market so much, but a bigger decline in the dollar, a bigger rise in the price of gold based on this news. Because I do think that anything that increases the probability of Biden winning is bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. And I think that Trump getting COVID does that. Maybe the markets don't handicap it the way I do. Maybe they figure it's a non-event. And so there really wasn't much of a movement. But again, the way I look at it, I think all else being equal, I think it is a, a negative for, for Trump. And therefore, it's a negative for the dollar. Uh, it's a positive for gold. But again, gold's going up regardless of the outcome of the election and the dollar's going down, I just think the moves will be even bigger if uh, Trump ends up losing and Biden is the next president. Of course, if the Democrats do have the Senate as well, then that's the worst possible outcome for both the nation and for the dollar. Of course, that is the most bullish possible outcome for gold. I'm not rooting for that outcome, even though you know I'm, I'm long gold and long all these stocks that would benefit. You know, I root for what helps my country you know, as an American, but I position my portfolio for what I expect to happen, not necessarily what I hope happened. Now, again, normally the non-farm payroll number would have gotten a lot more publicity today. And probably it's just as well that it didn't as far as Trump is concerned, uh, because the numbers weren't that good. They were certainly not nearly as good as had been anticipated. We did create a uh, quite a bit of uh, jobs, right, in the month of September. But again, these are not really jobs being created. These are jobs that were lost being restored, right? These are people going back to the jobs they used to have. So it's not like, oh, we have this great booming economy creating all these new jobs. No, we are just recreating the jobs that we just destroyed. 
In other words, we're not really creating them. They were just temporary layoffs. And now those people who were temporarily laid off are now returning to the jobs that they used to have. So the numbers look good. And I know Trump likes to talk about how strong this recovery is. Well, it's not really a recovery uh, because those jobs were never really lost. Now, a lot of these jobs were in fact lost. We just don't know it yet because I think a lot of these people who have been recalled, who have come back to work, I think ultimately their employers are going to realize after the fact that they don't really need a lot of these workers and a lot of these workers are going to be refired. Except next time it's going to be permanent, not temporary. But anyway, let's look at the numbers. The uh, prior month was a big month. We had 1.371 million jobs that were created. And in fact, we actually revised that number higher. So the new number for the August uh, non-farm number was plus 1,489,000. That was a big number. Now, the consensus was for a more moderate 894,000 jobs being created in September. And we came in substantially below that number, 661,000 jobs added in September. So still a lot of jobs taken in isolation, but not nearly as many as were estimated. And if you compare the number of jobs created in September to the number created in the prior month, it's a collapse. And if that trajectory maintains, well, where are we going to be in uh, October? Are we going to be down to 300,000 jobs? Maybe fewer. And then the following month, how many more months before we start printing negative non-farm payroll numbers again? Because as I said, I think a lot of these people that have gone back to work are going to end up back on the unemployment lines when their bosses realize they don't need them. And of course, some of these people may have been brought back by people who took these payroll protection loans. Because one of the reasons that you needed to keep the people on the payroll is so you don't have to repay the loan. So some of these people might only be on the books long enough for employers not to have to repay those loans. And then once that obligation is extinguished, well, these jobs may be extinguished along with it. One of the numbers, though, that the White House will probably point to as some measure of success is the drop in the unemployment rate, the official rate anyway, which was at 8.4% in August. The consensus was for decline to 8.2%, but we actually dropped all the way to 7.9. So that will be the last official unemployment rate that voters will have a look at before they vote in November. Of course, some people have already voted, right? Absentee, mail-in ballots, some of those have already been cast. But anyway, this is it. 7.9 is the final uh, read. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you 
regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete.me isn't just a one-time service. Delete.me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But the main reason that the unemployment rate dropped, it's not because a lot of people got jobs. I mean, that's not really what did the trick. What was the big factor pushing down the unemployment rate is that lots of the unemployed people left the labor force. The labor force participation rate dropped all the way down to 61.4. It was at 61.7 the month before, and the expectation was for an uptick to 61.8. Instead, we went all the way down to 61.4. That's a big decline in the number of people in the workforce. So these people didn't return to work. They just stopped looking for work. And so they're unemployed, but technically they're not considered unemployed because they're no longer looking. But from the economy's perspective, they're not in the economy. They're not productive. They're not providing services or helping to produce goods. So the economy doesn't have the benefit of their productivity, uh, but the unemployment rate goes down because now they're no longer considered unemployed. So that's really what what went on. So that's nothing to be excited about. In fact, if anything, that is another problem to worry about. As far as average hourly earnings, there it wasn't a pretty picture either. In the prior month, there was an increase of 0.4, and we just revised that down to 0.3. And the consensus for September was for an increase of 0.2, and that only came in at 0.1. So 
we had a downward revision to the prior month and we missed consensus on the current month. So all in all, uh, you know, not good news. Average hourly earnings, again, there, uh, we revised down the 4.7% increase from the prior month to just 4.6. The consensus for the current month was 4.8. Again, this is year over year, rather. The first one was month over month. And now that came in at 4.7, so a little lower than had been expected there. So all in all, you know, when you look at it, it's a not nearly as strong a employment report as was expected. And we need real strong reports because we're trying to get out of a huge hole. And so these reports need to be very strong because of how weak uh, the numbers were prior, how massive the job losses were, you know, on the way down right? On the left side of the V, if you think there's going to be a V-shaped recovery, you got to have strong numbers on the right side to come anywhere close to having a V. And the numbers that we're getting just aren't going to cut it. You know, one thing about ExpressVPN is it doesn't log any of your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your information. Second is the speed. Now, I've tried other VPNs in the past, and some of them slow down your connection, make your device sluggish. I've never experienced that with ExpressVPN. My internet speeds are just as fast when I'm using it as when I'm not. And even when your server that you're connecting to is thousands of miles away, uh, you can still stream video with the same quality. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart, though, from the other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect, and that's it. It's so simple, even your grandparents can use it. And it's not just me saying that. Wired, The Verge, CNET, many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash gold today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. Expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. Of course, you know, with so many people still unemployed, you have these continuous negotiations now on Capitol Hill regarding the next stimulus package and the size of that package. And I keep hearing a lot of congressmen, they come on television, they talk about the stimulus, the need for stimulus. And one thing that they all seem to agree on is that we need more spending. We need to stimulate the consumer. And the rationale for this is that consumption drives the economy. At least that's what everybody seems to think, right? We just need more spending and we need to stimulate that. But the reality is that's the last thing we need. We don't need more spending. We don't need more consumption, which is what spending is. We need more production. What will stimulate the economy is putting unemployed people back to work. And I'm not talking about make work government programs. That doesn't do anything for the economy. I'm talking about productive employment. What makes the economy stronger is the availability of more goods and services. So we need people working to produce those goods and to provide those services. So anything that is going to stimulate the economy needs to make it easier for the economy to be more productive. 
So what would be a legitimate stimulus? Well, deregulation, right? Regulations get in the way. Regulations are expensive to comply with. They divert resources that could be used productively to make more stuff or provide more services and hire more people uh, to help deliver those. But instead, uh, the regulations slow everything down. They gum up the works. So that would be a big stimulus, would be to try to repeal as many regulations as possible. But that never even comes up in terms of stimulus. Another way to stimulate the economy would be to make the government less expensive, a smaller burden, right? If we could find a way to lower taxes on uh, businesses, then businesses could use the money that they were paying taxes with, and they could use that productively to help provide the economy with more goods and services that would require more employment to provide those services and to produce those goods. But we can't do that unless we find ways of cutting back on government spending, right? We need to make government less expensive so that companies don't have to spend as much money to finance it. So we have to make government more efficient. We have to look at ways to reduce government spending. But no, that would never be considered as part of the stimulus because as far as you know, these Keynes are concerned, spending money is what stimulates the economy. And it doesn't even matter who spends it or what we spend it on, just so long as it's spent. But they've got the economic cart before the horse. If you just print money, which is really what all the stimulus is about, right? It's about the Federal Reserve printing money to buy up the extra bonds that have to be sold to finance the stimulus. We just want to give money to non-productive people, right? We're not trying to put non-productive people back to work. We want to continue to pay them while they're not working and just create the money. Well, how does that stimulate the economy? I mean, if you really could stimulate an economy just by printing money and giving it to people who are sitting at home doing nothing, well, you know, why wait for COVID? Just do that all the time. If that works during bad times, why doesn't that work during good times? And why doesn't everybody do it? If, if it's so easy, the reason is because it doesn't work. If you just print money and give it to people, what happens? Well, they go and spend it on what? Because we haven't produced any more goods and services. We just produced more money. So what happens is the price of goods and services goes up. Now, also, the trade deficit might go up because we may use that money to buy more imported goods, which we are seeing. We're seeing record high trade deficits, which are only going to go higher. But there are certain things that we can import, certain services uh, that we can import. And a lot of those prices are really going to be going up. That's all that's getting stimulated other than stock prices, which are prices. When the Federal Reserve prints money, that's what gets stimulated. We get higher prices. Now, to the extent that we get higher stock prices and higher real estate prices and higher bond prices, people are happy about that, but they're not going to be happy about higher prices for the consumer goods and services that everybody is buying. But that's all that's going to happen. That's the only thing the government will succeed in stimulating. If you could really stimulate legitimate production by printing money, then nobody would be poor. I mean, any country can have a printing press. If it was that simple, everybody would do it. And Zimbabwe would be, you know, wealthy right now. So would Argentina, right? Maybe the Weimar Republic would have succeeded, right? And Hitler would never would have come to power. But no, it doesn't work. It is production that drives the economic train, not consumption. Consumption is the caboose. 
It's the production that makes the train move. If something isn't produced, it can't be consumed. If we're not producing it ourselves, then we have to lie on the productive efforts of our trading partners. But how much longer will our trading partners supply us with goods if we have no ability to pay? If all we can do is print money and we can't export real goods uh, to pay for the real goods that we imported from them. But the other thing that really bothers me, apart from the emphasis on consumer spending and consumption and how we need more of that, when that's the last thing we need more of, when when people are at home and we don't have enough savings or enough production, consumers need to cut back, right? You've got a lot of these consumers that are loaded up with debt and now they don't have jobs. Why do we want these guys to keep spending? They got to stop spending. The problem is they spent too much in the past. Now they got to make up for that by spending a lot less now and in the future. But apart from making these economic mistakes on understanding what grows an economy, what really pisses me off is when the Republicans, not as much the Democrats, because I don't even know if they're saying this, but sometimes the Republicans will get a question about, well, aren't you worried about the deficit, right? I mean, you're supporting all this stimulus, but it's going to make the deficits bigger. Aren't you worried about that, right? And every time I hear one of these Republicans interviewed, it's the same script. We'll deal with the deficits later, right? We, we can't worry about the deficits now because, you know, we got this emergency. Uh, you know, we can't just let everything collapse. So we have to make the deficits larger now, but we'll just make them smaller in the future, right? We will pay for today's deficits tomorrow. But that's BS. They say that all the time, right? We're going to pay for today's deficits with tomorrow's surpluses. The surpluses never come. Or we're going to have deficits when times are bad, but then we'll pay for them when times are good. But they never pay for them when times are good. I mean, supposedly the times were just good, right? Trump was bragging about the greatest economy in the history of the world before COVID. Did we do anything about the deficit back then? Yeah, we made it bigger, right? Did we have any cuts to government spending? No. We increased government spending when times were good. Did we have tax hikes when times were good to help rein in the deficits? No, we cut taxes when times were good. So if we're going to cut taxes and increase spending when times are bad and then also do it when times are good, how are we ever going to deal with the deficit? This is BS. Whenever you hear a politician tell you, yes, I'm concerned about the deficit, but I'm, I'm going to make it bigger now on purpose, but don't worry, we'll tackle it later. You know, the bigger they make the deficit on purpose now, the less likely they are to deal with it later because the bigger it is, the harder it is to deal with it, right? Because it, it, you now you have even more debt. So now you have to have bigger spending cuts or bigger tax increases. And so it becomes harder and harder to deal with the debt the longer you kick that can down the road. And that's exactly what these guys are saying. I mean, at least they should have the integrity, although maybe saying integrity with a politician in the same sentence is, is really a stretch. But they should at least propose some kind of automatic tax hike spending cuts that would be triggered based on some level of uh, GDP or unemployment or something that says, look, we're going we're gonna to run these deficits now to get us out of this ditch. But once we're out of it, Let's put these tax hikes, spending cuts on autopilot. So we've bound some future Congress to do something that's unpopular, right? We're going to lay the groundwork now to tackle the deficits that we're creating. So when times do return to normal, we automatically get these spending cuts or these tax hikes. But, you know, the problem was even if they can get 
Congress today to vote for those automatic cuts, right? They can't bind a future Congress. Any Congress can, can undo that, but at least you force a vote, right? At least you force congressmen to vote to undo those caps or undo those automatic uh, tax hikes and spending cuts. And then you force uh, the president to sign the bill. But if we had a decent president, which is a big if, he could veto the bill, which a Republican uh, president who actually cared about the deficits would do. Uh, but you know, even if we did that, I mean, remember we did that when Clinton was in there, we had the sequestration, we had all these rules uh, that were these budget rules. And eventually Congress just voted them all away. Right. But initially there was some credit given to the government because they, they, they put in place a mechanism that would tackle deficits in the future. And I remember there was a lot of hoopla around those accomplishments. But I remember at the time saying it means nothing. It doesn't matter what these guys are voting to commit a future Congress to because the future Congress is no more required to do it than they were. Basically, what they're saying is we don't have the guts to make the hard choices, but we're going to obligate a future Congress to make the hard choices that we're too afraid to make ourselves. Well, what makes them think a future Congress is going to have the guts to let them go through? Right? They're not. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to chicken out, just like the Congress that, that, that passed the baton. Anyway, while I'm on the subject of ridiculous uh, legislation, I, I read that this week now, California is now officially moving forward with their study of slavery reparations. And this would be reparations paid to African-Americans in California by California, right? By the state of California. Now, first remember, the state of California right now wants bailout money from the federal government. But so if the state of California is already broke, which they are, and they're asking for bailout money, how can they even consider paying reparations? Out of what pocket? Where's the money coming from? They're already broke. They have huge unfunded liabilities out in California. And now they want to study whether or not they should assume another huge liability when they came and afford the liabilities they have. Now, ironically, if they actually wanted to do slavery reparations, they would end up having to go to the U.S. government for a bailout to afford it. But if the U.S. government isn't going to do reparations for slavery, why should California, especially since California was admitted to the Union as a free state? So there weren't any slaves in California. So the whole idea that the state of California owes reparations when they didn't even have slaves in California, I mean, I guess that doesn't stop them, right? They want to be politically correct. They want to talk about it. Now, again, I don't think that California is actually dumb enough to actually you know, enact a reparation, but I think politically they want to be politically correct. They want a virtue signal so they can at least you know, say they're going to study it because that's a way to, you know, they're not shooting it down. They're not saying we don't believe in it. We're just going to have a commission to study it. And that buys them some time, right? They don't actually come out and say, hey, come on, this is ridiculous. We're not going to pay reparations. So they agree to form a commission and waste some taxpayer money to study the issue of reparations. And then they'll deal with uh, the fact that they can't afford reparations or even figure out a way uh, to, to, to do it. Uh, later on, right? So they can avoid uh, that that issue. But, you know, on this virtue signaling, I don't think I ever spoke about uh, this, but I thought it was uh, an interesting 
development, ironic to say the least, because Princeton University had come out, right? And they were one of the schools to come out and publicly confess their systemic racism, right? They, they admitted that they were a bunch of racists over there at Princeton, that the university is replete with systemic racism, uh, and it's just ongoing, it's perpetuated over time, and they're committed now to finally, after all these years, they're finally committed to trying to stamp out this systemic racism that permeates uh, all of the institutions at Princeton, right? They came out and they said that. Well, then the Trump administration came out and they sent a letter to Princeton. They said, hey, you know, you guys are getting a bunch of federal funds. I think it's about $75 million in federal funding. And, you know, we're not allowed by law. We can't give our federal funds to racist institutions. Well, you just admitted that you're racist and that there's racism all over Princeton. So, you know, we can't give you this money. Now, they didn't come right out and say you're not getting it. They said, look, you know, we're going to investigate this. But, you know, you've already confessed, right? I mean, if you confess to a crime, I mean, what, you know, what more of an investigation do you need? In fact, if I was in Trump administration, I would say, look, you know, why waste money on an investigation? It's like, why do you need a trial when the person has already confessed to the crime? You know, just commence with the sentencing. And I think that's what should have happened. But apparently they're going to come down. But maybe they're going to give Princeton an opportunity to backtrack on their statement. Because now Princeton is pushing back and say, oh, no, well, well, we're not really racist. I mean, yeah, we're racist, but I mean, we're not racist. I mean, we're only racist in the sense that we're willing to admit that we're racist, but we're not actually racist in the sense that we have racism on our campus, right? So they're really caught in a lie. Because of course Princeton is not racist. They know they're not racist. They only pretend to be racist to placate a mob, right? That is the pressure everybody is under. If you don't admit that you're a racist, well, then you're a racist. But if you admit to being a racist, well, doesn't that make you a racist? Again, it's like, have you stopped beating your wife? There's no way to deal with that question. And the way Black Lives Matters operates, you're a racist no matter what you say. And I think the Trump administration is really highlighting the absurdity of this. And I think Princeton is now caught in a trap of its own making, or it's, it's made its bed, and, and now the Trump administration wants to force Princeton to lie in it. I hope they do, and personally, I hope they don't get any of this federal funding. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit about Bitcoin. I haven't touched on Bitcoin in a while, and that's mainly because Bitcoin hasn't really done anything. I mean, Bitcoin has been trading in a range for quite some time now. The upper end of the range is around 11,000. I mean, Every once in a while, it gets it gets up there, but normally it kind of tops out around 10,800, 10,900, and then it sells off into the low 10,000s. And as I am speaking now, we're right about the middle of that range. We're just above 10,500, uh, Bitcoin going nowhere. It did have a sharp sell-off yesterday. Uh, Bitcoin was in the news based on criminal indictments of the three founders and the first employee of BitMEX. And BitMEX is a cryptocurrency exchange actually quite famous for the high degree of leverage that uh, it allows. I think you can get maybe 100 to 1 leverage. You can be long. You can be short. So there's a lot of fast money uh, trading cryptos uh, through BitMEX. 
And obviously, BitMEX is making a lot of money because there are fees, right? Every time you're buying and selling, uh, you know, they're, they're taking a cut. And so to the extent that you have a lot of speculation, there's a lot of trading and there's a lot of money being generated. So I'm sure BitMEX is a very profitable company. It's incorporated offshore. They're in the Seychelles. The Seychelles is a group of islands. It's in the Indian Ocean, just off of East Africa. A beautiful group of islands, a great place to vacation, but there are a lot of businesses there uh, because of the tax and regulatory environment, obviously, that attracted BitMEX. And so they figured, okay, we'll incorporate over there. It'll be a lot easier. We'll have a lot more flexibility. We'll have lower costs than if we try to incorporate in a higher cost jurisdiction like the U.S. At least that's what the founders thought. So they wanted to get this off the ground in a more favorable jurisdiction. And so they didn't uh, set the business up in the U.S. But of course, a lot of Americans were trading at BitMEX as well as, uh, you know, people all around the world. And so now you've got criminal prosecutions for all these, the, the three founders and that, that one employee, so four people for violating the Bank Secrecy laws, Bank Secrecy Act, and in particular, anti-money laundering, AML. And I have talked about AML on this podcast before. Again, all of this has its roots in the Patriot Act. And when you deal with the public in a financial institution, which BitMEX clearly is, right, because people are depositing money and they're trading, right, you need to do KYC, know your customer, right? KYC is the abbreviation. And you have to know your customer and you have to run through all sorts of AML protocols uh, to make sure that the people who have accounts with you are not terrorists, drug dealers, uh, you know, money launderers, but really it's about taxes. Pretty much all this stuff really boils down to tax compliance. It's all these governments that have high taxes trying to make sure that their citizens pay up and they're trying to force the private sector to be unpaid tax collectors and spy on all their customers and rat them out if it looks like maybe they've done something wrong. And that is why BitMEX, uh, these guys have been charged with failing to have adequate AML procedures in place, right? It, there isn't a finding that there was real money laundering going on. And, and in fact, again, most real money laundering is just tax evasion, which most people don't look at as money laundering. They look at it as tax evasion, right? It's a crime, but they don't think of it as laundering money. But that's really where it falls into that category. Most people think money laundering is when you have illegal income, right? You're a drug dealer, right? You made your money illegally and you need to launder it to clean it up. But really what's going on is it's mostly money that was earned legally and it doesn't really need to be laundered because it has a legal source. It just needs to be hidden from the tax collectors, right? So that's not really traditionally what money laundering was, but that's what money laundering is now, right? That's the bulk of it. And these guys didn't do enough to make sure that everybody was compliant. See, they're not saying that there is money laundering going on at BitMEX. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. That's not the point. The point is that BitMEX didn't do enough to make sure there was no money laundering. And the fact that money laundering may not have taken place, well, that's not a defense. So you can't come back and say, well, there's no money laundering here. You know, that's irrelevant. What they're going to be charged with is did they do enough to prevent money laundering so that, you know, 
if somebody tried, they would have failed, right? That's the whole idea. If you didn't have the procedures, the fact that nobody tried is irrelevant. All that counts is, did you have the correct procedures? And apparently they didn't. And obviously, you know, one of the reasons maybe they didn't is it's very expensive. You know, I mean, maybe when they got started, they didn't have the resources. But part of the problem is, by definition, all this crypto stuff is a red flag, right? I mean, anybody who has crypto assets, by definition, right off the bat, there's a red flag for money laundering. I mean, that's just the way they're looked at. So if you're running BitMEX, you're going to have red flags all over the place. I mean, your KYC is going to be extremely expensive and time-consuming because everybody is going to be suspicious. Not that everybody is laundering money, but there are a high percentage of people that deal in crypto that haven't declared income on their profits, right? So there's a lot of tax evasion going on in the crypto community, right? So if somebody brings crypto assets to a financial institution right away, that's a red flag in and of itself, right? That's why I know at my bank early on, we just we, we just refused to accept any money from any crypto companies. I mean, I wanted to. I mean, I thought it would have been good business. A lot of people in the crypto community knew me. They were looking for banking relationships, but it was too risky. We couldn't afford to touch it. It was just too high compliance. So it's just better to say nobody with crypto. We won't take any deposits from anybody who has anything to do with cryptocurrency, right? We can't take the risk. Uh, but BitMEX, yes, every customer they took. So it was a very, very difficult compliance problem from the beginning that they had. So who knows uh, whether or not they actually had all of the proper procedures. I, I've seen a statement from the attorney from one of the guys saying, um, you know, this is ridiculous. We reject this. We will vigorously contest this. We did everything right, which of course you would expect them to say, and maybe they did. I don't know, right? But what I do know is that the requirements are very strict, right? The things that you need to do to vet all your customers, especially when their source of funds is from crypto. And, and, and then it's not just what did they do with the money before it came to you. You got to know what they're doing with the money after they pull it out. I mean, you got you to you spy on everything that your customers do, and then you got to report what they've done if it's suspicious. So, you know, obviously a lot of work there and it's a risk. I mean, these guys are looking at five years in prison, potentially, if they get convicted. Now, maybe, you know, maybe it won't be a trial. Maybe it'll be a plea bargain. I don't know. I really don't know how strong their hand is because I don't know what their uh, compliance department was. But, you know, this was scary. The crypto uh, Bitcoin sold off. It didn't break support. But again, as Bitcoin community, as all of the trading houses, have to ramp up their compliance, which I think they do, right? I think I think it is very risky and very expensive. That's you know that's why gold money got out of the business as quickly as they did. Um, you know it's it's very very expensive to do it right. Now it's unfortunate that you have to do it. I think these laws should be repealed. I think they're bad laws, uh, and in America I think they're unconstitutional laws. But those are the laws. That's what you have to do. And I think to the extent that the crypto community actually complies with all these laws, that is going to dramatically increase the cost to trade Bitcoin, make it much more expensive to buy and sell, which makes it even less likely to succeed as money when it's so expensive to use it. I mean, it's already expensive to do these transactions based on the energy that is consumed in verifying the transactions. 
But when you require a much higher degree of oversight, a lot more people, a lot more eyes on transactions to make sure that each transaction has been properly vetted for potential money laundering, which just means paying taxes, that is not only going to slow down the speed with which transactions take place, but dramatically increase the cost affecting those transactions. And all of that has to be passed on to the end user of Bitcoin, right? So this is a big negative, what's going on. Now, also, a Coinbase was in the news for a totally different reason, but, you know, another big crypto wallet. But they decided now that they are banning their employees from having any political discussions on the workplace, right? So that's not even a topic that's allowed. That shows you uh, where we've come. Now, of course, most of these, you know, Silicon Valley type uh, companies, I mean, they would never do that because it's pre they're pretty much all liberal over there. So all the discussions, uh, you know, there's not going to be much argument and probably anybody who isn't a liberal just keeps his mouth shut if he wants to be able to, you know, even work. Uh, but they're saying, you know, no one can discuss politics, which, you know, some people are upset. Uh, they're saying, you know, you know, it was freedom of expression, you know, political freedom, not on the job, right? You're on the job. It's not a democracy, right? It, it, it's a dictatorship. The boss, the owner is the dictator. Now, you don't like it. You can leave, right? It's not like you're stuck there. It's not, you know, it's not slavery. You can get the hell off the plantation, right? If you don't like what this guy is, uh, is saying. And in fact, what Coinbase said, they said, look, if anybody wants to quit because they don't like this new restriction, we're going to pay out a very generous severance package, which I thought was quite nice. They're not required to do that. Uh, but but they're offering it. Um, but, you know, now, you know, it's a choice, right? You know, if you want to work at Coinbase, you got to check your political preferences at the door. You can't discuss it. You know, I wish the NFL would do the same thing with its players. Say, you know what? There's no politics at the NFL, right? There's no protesting allowed. There's no hand-holding in the middle of the field. There's no kneeling, nothing, right? You want to do all that stuff, do it on your own time, right? Do it on your free time, right? Don't do it on the job. See, people make a big deal. They think that, well, the, the, the NFL players have a right to do that. No, they don't. You think people that work, you know, at a grocery store, at a restaurant, have a right to just stand there at, and protest? What if you, what if you went into a, into a restaurant and, you know, the, the uh, Mater D there just had a, you know, a big political t-shirt, uh, had a big sign, and it was something that you disagreed with. I mean, you're going there to eat. You're not going there uh, to have a political argument. And, you know, maybe, you know, you don't want to see that. And if that's going to cause somebody to maybe leave the restaurant, I'm not going to go to this restaurant again. I don't like the politics of the Mater D, right? The owner of the restaurant, I mean, he, he has a right to say, look, no, you come up, you're not wearing uh, any Black Lives Matter t-shirts. You're not wearing any MAGA hats. This is the uniform. That's it. I don't care. On your time off, you want to go out and you want to dress the way you want and protest the way you want. That's fine. But not on the job. Not when I'm paying you. Right. And that's the same thing with these NFL players. In fact, these guys are famous enough that they've got a big enough stage. They can all get together off of work uh, and, and do whatever they want. But when they ground the clock, when they check in at the stadium and they're taking millions of dollars. Right. No, that's Coinbase. Coinbase had no problem. Hey, we're the we're, this is the company. These are our rules. You don't like them? Go work someplace else. This is this is what we require in our workplace. And yeah, I'm I'm all for that. But again, 
it's unfortunate that the political discourse has degenerated to the point where people just can't disagree civilly now. It's it's dangerous now. I mean, it's war. And the other problem is the differences between the political parties are so narrow now. It's like when you had real big differences, there was not this level of, of, of anger. I mean, that's ironic, right? When the parties were really contrast, when you had, you know, one party that really wants limited government, right? No welfare state, sound money, balanced budgets, right? A real, let's say, uh, right wing, uh, limited government, you know, uh, pro business, pro free markets uh, a party. And then way on the other side, you got a party that really wants big government, lots of regulations, wealth redistribution, all the stuff that are traditionally the things that the Democrats have been pushing. When you kind of had a big divide, there was a lot more civility. Uh, the sides weren't fighting as much. But now that they've moved closer and closer uh, to each other so that there's not as much actual differences. So then what happens is the only difference becomes anger, you know, where where, where the sides are, are, are so diametrically opposed to one another. And it's really because there's so little actual difference between what they want, right? They all want all this free stuff from government. Uh, they all want big government. So what they fight over is the rhetoric. They fight over the form, rather fighting over the substance, because by and large, they agree on the substance. 